Look with me, if you would, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. The Word of God says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron and the king excuse me the king at Hebron and king David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years in Hebron he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants, natives of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now, David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. And he said, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perizim. And David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perizim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord and said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them. Come upon them in front of the mulberry trees, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, when then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. 
And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Well, a lot has happened to bring us to this moment in chapter 5. In fact, you could say that it's been a long time coming since David's secret anointing all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, which was a symbolic ceremony whereby God made it clear through the prophet Samuel that David was his chosen king of Israel. Somewhere around 15 years have passed since that moment in 1 Samuel chapter 16, that, that anointing that took place in the little town of Bethlehem. In fact, when we come to verse 1 here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we begin with the word then. Do you see it there in your text? The Bible says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David. Then. I have it bolded and underlined it here in my notes. The word then. Then. It's a, it's a little word that represents a whole lot of activity. It speaks of the providence and plan of God. It's a lesson, a theological truth that I hope we've strengthened throughout our studies together throughout the whole Bible, but especially here in First and Second Samuel, that God's purposes will always come to pass. God's purposes will always come to pass. And that's what that little word then represent. It represents the providence and plan of God. I was reminded in my own reading this week of a verse in Job chapter 42 and verse 2 where Job in his prayer to God after realizing that he could not fight with God, he could not argue with him any longer, he lifts his heads and his hands toward heaven and he says, no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Whatever God wills, whatever God purposes to do, He will always, by His providence, bring it to pass. Always. Now, it may not happen according to our timing, and it may not happen according to our comfort, or even our strategy of how we would like to see it come to fruition. But it will happen. Because God's purposes always come to pass. Then, see it there in verse 1, then, then, it speaks of all those moments when David's father-in-law and the people's king Saul was madly pursuing him just to kill him. Then, it, it speaks of those scenes of discouragement where David felt like the very next step he takes will be the step that brings him death. Then. Then it tells us about Abner placing Ishbosheth on the throne instead of David, David causing every tribe but one to ignore God's anointed king. Yet then also speaks of Abner changing his mind. It speaks of Abner changing sides and submitting to David's kingship. Then also speaks of Ishbosheth's assassination that we looked at in chapter 4. My, my point is this. Through those 15 years, there was a lot of heartache. There was a lot of difficulty, a lot of trial in David's life. But this was God's plan, and this was God's timing, and this was God's purpose. 15 years 
of preparing him to officially take the throne. Now from the past to the present in your life tonight, from the past to the present to this very moment, everything that you have experienced is part and parcel of God's extraordinary providence to care for your life and to bring you to where you are at this moment. Because everything God does is for a purpose. And all of his purposes will come to pass. Then, then, finally, all the tribes came to David. And that's what we see in chapter 5. The time has now come for David to receive his kingdom. From a shepherd boy to a shepherd king. You might even say from the little town of Bethlehem to the place of Jerusalem. The time had come. I've entitled it A King, A City, A Mission. And without getting too dramatic here, that's exactly what my outline is as well, all right? Number one, a king, all right? Let's look at it. A king. Verse one, that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, verse 3 tells us specifically that it was all the elders of Israel that came to him. Obviously, uh, not 7 million people were coming to David at Hebron, but the the elders representing the 7 million people, the elders of Israel, verse 3, they came to the king at Hebron. They came to the king. Think about that. They came to the king, all of the elders. Now, the last time we see all of the elders of Israel coming together was all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when they demanded that Samuel appoint them a king. That's the last time we see them all coming together. Now we see them after years and years of stubbornness and pride and rejection. Now they are coming to the actual king that God had planned and purposed for them. And here's how they came. They came, first of all, acknowledging that David fulfilled the requirement to be king. What do we mean? Well, think of this requirement that God laid out for the king of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 15. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your Brethren, you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So we see a couple of requirements here. We see one, that the requirement for the king of Israel is to be blood-related, blood-related. They didn't come to David as if he was a stranger here in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. They didn't come to him as if he was a foreigner or an enemy. They came to him as a brother, recognizing that they were of the same flesh and blood. Verse 1, look at it. They said, that is the elders of Israel, when they came to the king, when they came to David, they said, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. We are your bone and your flesh. I find it very fascinating here that they didn't say, you are of our bone and our flesh. 
What are they expressing in here? They are recognizing that they share the same bloodline. They are recognizing that it is David to whom they are to submit themselves to and not the other way around. They also acknowledge that David was the king that God had chosen. He was the king that God had chosen. Verse 2 says that these elders said to David that the Lord said to you, to you, David, this is what the Lord said to you, that you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Again, David the shepherd boy was always supposed to be David the shepherd king. So how did they come to the king? They came to him acknowledging that David fulfilled the requirement to be king. He was of the same bloodline. And he was the king that God had chosen. They also came acknowledging that David was the true savior of Israel. He was the true savior of Israel. Again, I go back to verse 2. Also, these elders said, in time past, when Saul was king over us, it was you. You were the one. You were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. That They are fully acknowledging here that the victories Israel had experienced were the result of David's leadership. God's chosen king it was not the result of Saul's leadership. The people's chosen king. No, it was David who had led them out against their enemies. It was David who had brought them back over and over again, safe and victorious. So it was foolish for them to have followed another king when it was David all along who had been the true savior of Israel. So in all of this, their senses, that is, the people of Israel, of all the tribes, the elders especially, their senses were awakened and they finally came to the true king. Now friends... We see what this picture is, right? Remember, throughout our study since we began, David points us to Jesus. He points us to Jesus. David's kingdom is God's kingdom. It represents the kingdom of Christ. So we also conclude from the whole of Scripture that rebellious sinners must come to the king. They must come to the king. And by the way, the king meets those requirements. The king who is chosen by God. The king who is the only true savior. And that king is not David, by the way. The imperfect king. It is Jesus, the perfect king. This is coronation day. They, they are anointing David as king. And it shows us as they come to him, submitting to his kingship, what it is in God's kingdom. We must Come to Christ for who he is. He is king. And so they came to him. And the Bible says here in verse 3 that King David made a covenant with them before the Lord. And so they anointed David king over Israel. He made a covenant with them. Why? Because David represented the people before God. He also represented God before the people. And so he made a covenant. And as he made a covenant with them, they acknowledged his royal throne. So verse 4 and 5 tells us the common statistics related to his reign. As we see throughout the Bible, as it talks about the 
rule and reign of various kings. We see David's listed here. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. You know, a lot has happened to David before the age of 30, hasn't it? I don't know if that means to encourage you or what, but a lot has happened to this man. 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years in Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years, six months. In Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all of Israel and Judah. So what we see here in the first five verses is David is now king. And he's king over the whole nation. Not just Judah. He is king over the whole nation. Why? Because his kingdom had come. His kingdom had come. And they had come to the true king. So we have a king. Now, this is all going to be wrapped up at the end, but bear with me as we work through this. This is how we interpret the Old Testament. This is how we understand the narratives of God's holy word throughout the scriptures. It's not a list of how-tos and don't do this or be like him. No, this is about the unfolding picture of who Jesus is and how it relates to the kingdom of God. We have a king. All right, now, secondly, we have a city. We have a city, verses 6 through 16. Now, up to this point in history, Jerusalem was just a small Canaanite city. It was inhabited by the native Jebusites. Now, looking from this vantage point back on history, we understand the significance of Jerusalem. We understand all that it signifies today, both in the past and in the future. But at this moment, this is where it all begins. This is how it starts. Because it was not... An Israelite city. It was a Canaanite city. And, and here's the history. Here's how this all unfolds. And let me give you some brief references. I think this is important to the context. I don't have time to go into all the nuances of it. Perhaps you'll write these things down and it'll just trigger you to dive into this more. All right? We, we begin in Genesis 15. All right? God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a promise. Genesis 15, 18 says this. That the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and here's what he said. To your descendants, Abraham, I have given you this land. From the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Here's what I've given you. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The Jebusites. So all the way back in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham that this is your land. I have given this land to you and your descendants. This will belong to the people of God. And we fast forward to the book of Exodus. And uh, God comes to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. And here's what he says through the burning bush experience. He says... In verse 7 of chapter 3, I have surely, God speaking, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrow. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's Chick-fil-A and Starburst, or, or Starbucks, all right, all together. Land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hiphites. And can you finish it? And the Jebusites. Again, God says, I'm going to give you this land. But it was their responsibility to make sure that they took the land away from those people. And that's where we see all the fighting in Joshua. And we come to the book of Judges and we see in Judges chapter 1 and verse 20. That they gave Hebron to Caleb. They're dividing up the land now. They gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses said. 
Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin, this is Judges chapter 1, they did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this very day. So here we are. And the reason why David is getting ready to go to Jerusalem and conquer this city is because he is righting a wrong. This was something that should have already been done by God's people. But they did not obey. So David, in his first act, if you will, officially as the king of all Israel, is simply accomplishing what God had asked of Israel to do many, many, many years before him. And according to verse 6, the Jebusites attempted to intimidate David in this endeavor. In fact, they used some derogatory language to keep him away. Look at it in verse 6. The Jebusites, which were the natives of the land, they spoke to David and they said, You shall not come in here. But the blind and the lame will repel you. They'll keep you away. This is language of intimidation. It's language of smugness, pride. Because the Jebusites thought they were impregnable. They believed that only a small army was sufficient to keep David and his troops away. And so he describes their small army as a bunch of blind and lame people. He said, that's all we need to keep you away because we surely know. And it says there in verse 6, thinking, David's not going to come into here. And even if he tried, it doesn't take much to keep David away. All we have to do is send a bunch of blind and lame soldiers. That'll be sufficient to keep them away. So it's not not literal here. He's not literally sending blind and lame people. He's trying to be derogatory toward David, saying that it doesn't take much to defeat David. I dare him. I dare him to try to break through our city. Verse 7 gets right to the point and tells us that nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion and he called it the city of David. Now, the details of how this happened are not clear, but according to verse 8, it involved a water shaft. It involved a water shaft. Today, it's called Warren's shaft system. It's connected to Hezekiah's tunnel, which brought water from one side of the city to the other. You have visited with me in Israel, perhaps have walked through this tunnel. On my very first visit to Israel, I did not know what I was getting into when I decided to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel with the group that I was with. In fact, Chris and Hillary were there with me. And I got stuck at the end of the line for some reason. And it's tight quarters. In fact, I think I've got a picture or two of this. Is the first one a picture? There it is. There's Kathleen coming down into this water system just underneath Mount Zion, underneath David's palace. This is a portion of Hezekiah's tunnel. It's connected to Uh, the water system shaft that's being referred to in verse 8 of chapter 5. I think there's another picture. It's so, that's how small it was. So you you can't really see, but water is about up to her knees. And we're having to walk through this just to get through portions of the the tunnel. And and I was as claustrophobic as you could imagine. I was uh, almost hyperventilating. I had thought, man, what if an earthquake happens right now? We're all going to die in Hezekiah's tunnel. 
I mean, I respect the man, but I don't want to see him today, you know, all those sort of things. And so when we went back just a couple of years ago, those of you who went with us, a lot of you went through that tunnel. I just met you on the other side, all right? It, it, is, a, it is an intricate, intricate detail. In fact, those of you who are engineers, you would love this. You would love how this is laid out and designed. This is the water shaft. This is a part of the tunnel system that the Bible refers to. So, so those of you who've been there, you can picture it in your minds. Well, I've, I've walked through this shaft. Now, now we, we don't know all the details of it, but what we find here is that David conquered Jerusalem, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, by sending people through this water shaft system located underneath the city, perhaps a surprise attack, and as they arrive to the top, they defeat the people, they conquer Zion, they conquer Jerusalem, and there they immediately build a stronghold. Now this is of great historical significance, because Zion, which is synonymous with Jerusalem, okay, Zion, which is synonymous with Jerusalem, this was a place, or the place, where the hill of the Temple Mount is today. It's where Mount Moriah is, where God provided a sacrifice for Isaac. Geographically, it's strategic. It's the center of Israel. It was what God would use with David to bring the, 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 the kings, to bring the kingdoms together. Topographically, it sets, it sets on a hill, giving it the ideal place for protection, again, if you've been there and you've come to the top of Jerusalem, you know it sits above everything else. It's on the top of this hill overlooking the entire land. And it was here. It was here that David intentionally claimed his city. And as he ran the Jebusites out through this strategic design of conquering the town, the city, he gets to the end, and I find it rather humorous that he named it Davidopolis, <laughs> the city of David. Meaning, the city of the king, the capital of God's kingdom. So verse 10 says that David went on and became great. Look at it there in your Bibles. He became great. And why did he become great? Look at the next phrase. Because the Lord God was with him. That's why he became great. Nothing special about David. What made him great was that God was with him. That God was with him. Even Hiram, it says here in verse 11, who was the king of Tyre, which was geographically, you understand at this time, it was outside of Israel. So this is a foreign place, a foreign town, a foreign king. So even Gentile nations at this point are acknowledging Jerusalem's king. In verse number 11, they send him supplies and workers in order to build David's palace. You find it rather odd that you're reading all of this and you're seeing how David conquered and all of a sudden you find this foreign king of Gentile descent sending, sending things for David to build his palace. I think this little glimpse here given to us is to show us that God's king is a king for all the nations. He's a king for all the nations. He wasn't just Israel's king or the God of the Jewish people. No, even foreign kings bowed down to him. Amen. And it was through this, verse 12, we see that David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. I find that phrase fascinating. David knew that the Lord had established him as king. Because David didn't always know that. But now he knows it. 
But perhaps you find yourself even right now on shaky ground, lacking confidence in certain parts of God's purposes and plans for your life. Let me just remind you of what David goes through and what every Christian goes through, and that is through many dangers, toil, and snares, we come. We come. He didn't always know this. He wasn't always confident in that. But now he is confident because the Lord has fulfilled the promise. We'll say more about this city of the king in just a moment. But first we have to recognize the addendum that the narrator gives us in verses 13 through 16. Specifically verse 13. Look at it and then we'll go to the last and final. Verse 13 says, and we hate that we, we even have to deal with this, but it's there and it's for a purpose. Look at it. David took more concubines, more concubines. We've already dealt with this already, but here we are again. David's got a problem. He's got a weakness. Women is his weakness. And he took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come to Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to him. David, he's such a great man, but he's just a man. He's just a man. And that's what the narrator puts us in here to remind us of, lest we exalt David to the wrong position. David is a great man, but he is just a man. And once again, we see here David's big weakness pop up. He took himself more concubine and wise. Why is this a problem? Well, culturally speaking, it wasn't a problem because this is what all the kings did. But here's what God said about his king, Deuteronomy 17, 17. Neither shall he, the king of Israel, multiply wise for himself, lest his heart turn away. Lest his heart turn away. So again, culturally, all the other kings did this. This was normal. Kings conquered a city. They took concubines. It was, it was sexual, yes, but it was... It was also political. Sometimes we think about all the concubines and wives that Solomon had, and we think, man, how in the world? How in the world? Well, one, his daddy set the wrong example for him. Secondly, it wasn't that he was wrapped up with these women all day and all night. It was that so much of it was power, finances. It was, it was chess, it's what kings used to manipulate other kings to gain advantages and power of them. They were tokens. That was normal. It's gross, but it was stupidity. All of us are capable of such. Why? Because like David and not like Jesus, we're sinners. David was a sinner. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. In God's grace, we're able to enjoy moments of strength. Thanks be to God for that. But in our flesh, we also act out in moments of stupidity. We make foolish decisions. We think selfishly. We give in to the flesh rather than the law of God. And this is David's great weakness, especially with the women. We've seen it before. 2 Samuel 5, we see it again in 2 Samuel chapter 5, only a few chapters away from a lady named Bathsheba. It also reminds us that for all of David's greatness, he's not Jesus. David isn't the perfect king. He merely points us 
to the perfect king. (laughs) These looks at the imperfections in God's chosen servants throughout the scriptures show us that as great as these men and women in the Bible are, that the kingdom of God and the work of God, and may I say today, the church of God is ultimately only safe in the hands of Jesus. All right, we have to move on from this because it's 8 o'clock. But we have a king, we have a city, all right, now we have a mission. All right, let's look quickly at the mission, verse 17. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, how did they hear about it? I don't know, somebody probably put it on Facebook. But they heard about it. And all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. So here we see those pesky Philistines are back again. They are the great enemy of Israel. They are the reason the people even wanted a king. Saul couldn't defeat the Philistines. But now they were under the reign of God's king. And here they've returned. What is God's king going to do about their great enemy, the Philistines? Verse 18. The Philistines went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. That phrase, deployed themselves, it speaks of a divide and conquer strategy. And what does David do? Verse 19. And I don't want you to miss this. David inquires of the Lord. He prays. And here's what he prays. God, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? David is a king who trusts in the Lord. David is a praying king. He's a king who is submissive to God's guidance. Think about this in our own lives tonight. His first instinct isn't to strap on his military armor and rally the troops to go and do what they know how to do very well. That's not his first instinct. And all of us are built with those things in our lives. There are things that we're skilled at as David was. That when the situations present themselves in front of us, we know what to do. And we know what to do very well. And that is often our first instinct, our first response. But that's not David's. No, his first response is to wait and to pray. To wait and to pray. It reminds me of another Old Testament proverb. 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding, your own strengths, your own skills, your own strategies, what you know very well how to do. In all your ways, acknowledge him, trust him, seek his guidance, pray, Lord, what will you have me to do? In all your ways, acknowledge him, and guess what? He will direct your path. David didn't strap up the armor and go do what he knows very well to do. No, he gets down in the stronghold. He finds a quiet place to get along with God, and he prays, and he says, Lord, here we are in another trial, another battle, another tight spot. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to go up? Do you want me to take care of them? And guess what? God told him exactly what to do. Verse 19, the Lord said to David, go up. Just go, go up. For I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. 
So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. He defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Perazim. I don't have time to stop here, but that's what Baal Perazim means. It was a place that didn't have a name, so David named it. He named it Baal Perazim, God of the breakthrough. God of the breakthrough. He said, God came through for us here. He helped us defeat the enemy. And by the way, church, this is the God that we serve. He is the God of the breakthrough. He knows how to defeat your enemies. He knows how to provide for you. He knows how to bring you through the worst pain and toil of your life. He is God of the breakthrough. And breakthrough he did. The Bible says the Philistines were defeated. They ran for the life. Verse 21 They left their idols there, their gods, their images in the valley. David and his men carried them away. 1 Chronicles 14 tells us that when David and his men carried them away, they didn't carry them away and put them on their shelves. They carried them away and burned them. Because idols make promises, but they can never satisfy. The Philistines learned that the hard way. Well, that's the end of the story, isn't it? No, wait a minute. Look at verse 22. These pesky Philistines, they will not go away. They will not go away. So the Philistines, look at it, they went up once again. Once again. And they did the very same thing that they did last time. They divided and conquered. They deployed themselves in the valley of Rephium. This is deja vu. As Yogi Berra would say, all over again. Look at it. Same scene as before. Same mission, right? We got the same scene, the same situation. We should just go about it the same way that we did before. I mean... David can just go right on up. He can take care of business. He's done it before. He can do it again. Right? Wrong. Wrong. Look at what David did in verse 23. Therefore, David prayed. David inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. Same scene. Same strategy. Why didn't he just take God's first answer and go about it since it's the exact same situation? Because David didn't assume that what God permitted before is what God would permit now. Hey, we're getting to the bones of this. He did not assume that what God had permitted for his life before is what God would permit for him now. He didn't assume that God's answer to this same situation in the past is the way God would respond to this situation now. So what does he do? He prays again. He seeks the Lord again. He gets in that quiet spot again. And it's a good thing he did because as we read in verse 22, God's desire was for him to approach it differently this time. Verse 23, look at it. And the Lord said, Don't go up. Well, the last time the Philistines got in this situation, he said, go, go get them. Now he says, no, don't go straight after them. In fact, here's what I want you to do this time. This time, look at it, verse 20 there. I want you to circle around behind them, come upon them from the front of the mulberry trees. In other words, surprise attack, right? Surprise attack. And it shall be, verse 24, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. Then you shall advance quickly. 
For when the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did this. Just as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines. You see church family. In the outworking of the plan of God for his kingdom. There are places. Where repetition. Is essential. However. There are other places where tradition will kill you. Are you listening? We must always be praying about what the Lord wants us to do. Because the way we did it before may not be the way He wants us to do it now. I know you've heard it before. I haven't heard it in a long time, but it just fit the passage. I thought I'd use it as an example. But occasionally you'll hear people say, I just wish we could go back to how it used to be, back to where we were. In God's plan, however, back to where we were may not be where we're supposed to be. So that's why David prayed. Again and again and again. He prayed. God had a different approach this time. And David listened. How about in your life? Is tradition killing you? Are you assuming that the way God wants you to go about this venture that is ahead of you is the way that he wanted you to always do it? No, my friend, we cannot assume that. We must inquire of the Lord and say, oh God, this looks very similar to what I dealt with in this child. But do I approach this child the same way? Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, this, this season, it looks very similar to the, to the last time our church went through this. But, Lord, would you have us to do it the same way? Oh, you use example after example. But we must be constantly seeking the Lord with the missions that he gives us. Of course, the Philistines are going to show up from time to time, but they're going to cease to be a threat. Because David, as a part of his mission, he's accomplished God's desire. Defeat the enemy and save God's people. Defeat the Get this, get this. A king, a city, a mission. A king, a city, a mission. The mission for the king in his new city is to defeat the enemy and save God's people. Now, you're a smart group of people. I don't assume that. I know that. You're a smart group of people. So I know through the help of the Holy Spirit that you are seeing what I'm seeing here. Again, these Old Testament narratives are not a bunch of do's and don'ts. This is the unfolding story of redemption. The history of the Bible points us to Jesus. So in our text, what do we have? We have a king, we have a city, we have a mission. We have David, we have Jerusalem, and we have defeating the enemy. But this is all a picture. It's a picture of the perfect king, Jesus. It's a picture of the perfect city, the new Jerusalem, the city, not of David, the city of God, save his people. So those who come to Jesus must come to him as king because Jesus fulfills the requirements and he's the true perfect savior. 
as it was with David. If you come to Jesus, he will make a covenant with you. He will be your God. And you will be his people. Those who come to Jesus as king, they will become citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We will look to the perfect city that is to come, the city of God, the holy Zion, the the new Jerusalem that John looked up and said, I see coming. (laughs) You can visit Jerusalem and it's beautiful. It's really awesome. They even have an, uh, an Alabama Crimson Tide gift shop in the streets of Jerusalem. You can buy Alabama football stuff in one shop, and then you can buy yarmulkes in the next shop. It's unbelievable. It's awesome. You can go to where Jesus was crucified. You can walk in the empty tomb. You can read about all the things or see all the things that we read about in the Bible. It's great, but it's not that Jerusalem that we're living for. It's it's the new Jerusalem. It's the city of God that our king is establishing right now for us, his people. And why should I come to Jesus as king? Because he's the only one who has defeated sin. He's the only one who's defeated death. And it's by his mission to seek and to save those who are lost that he will guard and protect and defend and save those who come to him as king. I want you to get this, church. I'm taking my time with you in Samuel because I want you to see how to study your Bible. It's not always. God, show me Christ, a king, a city, a mission. I hope today that we've looked beyond David and that we've gazed into the face of Jesus. God, help us to live out his mission today, to look for his city that is to come and to submit ourselves.